This recording is brought to you by Whitworth University. To hear additional programs, please visit www.whitworth.edu backslash podcast. Well, good evening and welcome, everyone. It's uh, good to see you here this evening. It's my privilege and pleasure tonight to welcome to Whitworth this year's Woodrow Wilson Visiting Fellow, Dr. Anita Perez-Ferguson. First, let me just say a few things about the Visiting Fellows Program. For more than 35 years, the Woodrow Wilson Visiting Fellows Program has brought prominent artists, diplomats, journalists, business leaders, and other non-academic professionals to college campuses for substantive dialogue with students and faculty members. Through an innovative week-long residential program of classes and seminars, workshops, lectures, and other informal discussions, the visiting fellows create a better understanding and new connections between the academic and non-academic worlds. Whitworth has participated in the visiting fellows program now for several years. Uh, it's a program sponsored by uh, the Council for Independent Colleges, uh, of which Whitworth is a proud member. And this year, we're very happy to welcome Dr. Perez-Ferguson to our campus. Dr. Perez-Ferguson will be in residence all week. Uh, she arrived on Sunday. She had a day of orientation yesterday. I had the pleasure of hosting her in my home last night with various faculty members for dinner. Her busy schedule has her speaking to a variety of classes, groups, student organizations, and clubs on campus, in addition to her lecture here this evening. If you're interested in her schedule of appearances this week, I would encourage you to contact doc Dr. Catherine Carr Cornejo, who's right there, uh, who has done a marvelous job uh, with her colleagues of scheduling um, our visiting fellow this week. And so if you're interested in connecting with our guests sometime else this week, uh, or interested in hearing the topics that she's uh, discussing, we have that for you, and we would certainly invite you to take advantage of that. And now to our speaker, Dr. Anita Perez-Ferguson is a professional consultant, multicultural educator, and accomplished speaker and facilitator in areas of strategic program management, project evaluation, and development of leadership and advocacy skills. She, ser she serves, as we know, as a visiting fellow for the Woodrow Wilson Foundation. She shared with me last night, by the way, that Whitworth is one of some 20 institutions that she has visited over the years in her capacity as a visiting fellow. She also serves as, uh, or has served as a specialist for the U.S. Department of State's Office of International Information Programs, and as an administrator at colleges in California, Massachusetts, and Kenya. And I'll pause here to say that not only is Dr. Perez-Ferguson a champion and a believer in independent private higher education. She is also uh, a believer in Christian liberal arts private education. She uh, has taken a degree from Westmont College, a sister institution of Whitworth in California, and has also served uh, Gordon College in Massachusetts, another institution that we're well familiar with. Dr. Perez-Ferguson has authored or co-authored several books, including Women Seen and Heard, published in 2004, a portion of which was published by the Women's Policy Journal at the JFK School of Government at Harvard University. I found out also last night that her writing interests extend to historical fiction. Uh, you might say a little bit more about that. Her extensive public service includes 
the presidency of the National Women's Political Caucus and U.S. presidential appointments as chair of the Inter-American Foundation and as the White House liaison to the U.S. Department of Transportation. Dr. Perez Ferguson is called upon to speak on a wide-ranging set of topics, including the changing face of American politics, Thank you so much. I'm so pleased to be here and pleased to have the president here and the dean here this evening and each of you. We're small, but we will be mighty uh, in our remarks and in our presentation tonight. I imagine that the inconsolable voter topic has got to be a curiosity for many people. Don't you just wish we had presidential elections every year? That's the inconsolable voter. As a matter of fact, when I was able to speak with a group on campus today, I advised them to always start with a little data. And so I want to bring um, into perspective the data that we work with in an election year and how and when we get so torn apart in our country around presidential elections. There was, in the KGO radio land of San Francisco, a very interesting poll taken just a few weeks ago. It was on the morning talk show when they have their highest listeners, and uh, the callers called right in as soon as the poll was announced. There were 33% that were on the line right away with a no way, no vote. They said no, no, no. There were 30% that called in and said, yes, 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 I agree with that. There were 36% that called in and said, well, we're undecided. Now, the only strange thing about this poll was that no question was posed. No question. People were voting on they didn't know what. But they were sure, 33% of them, that they disagreed, 30% agreed, 36% undecided, no question. The whole idea of the enthusiasm that comes up, the uncertainty that remains, and how our elections are conducted in the United States in 2016 really makes us stop and take stock about who we are and how we participate and what's at stake. It's not the first time, however. One could say we're going downhill, we have fewer voters, we have more noise in the air, we have kind of ridiculous statements that are being made by some parties. Why are we in such a state? Well, I go to a third party reference or an individual who has studied for the National Civic Review and writes this about our elections. This is from Mark Strama, calling Overcoming Cynicism. The wiring of American democracy is disconnected. Americans no longer believe that ours is a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. I argue that this cynicism affects young people more than any other voting group. And we're seeing the results of that right now in the tremendous support for a particular candidate. Remember, we are the first generation to go to the polls who have grown up after Vietnam, Watergate, and Desert Storm. 
which permanently altered the way Americans regard their government. The first reason why we have such confusion and such inconsolable voters, in other words, it's hard to be satisfied no matter what happens, is because the process has been so extended and so overblown that it's hard to believe what you hear. It's hard to believe the speeches. It's hard to believe the promises. It's hard to believe the polls. And Lord help us, I hope it's not hard to believe the results this time. The inconsolable voter goes hoping to hear something genuine, hoping to have promises be fulfilled hoping that their vote counts for something. And yet, all this is tenuously at stake with our democracy because elections have consequences. And whoever sits in the White House in the next term or the next two terms will determine so much about the nature of our country and the nature of our relationship in the rest of the world. We realize the stakes are high and yet we're involved in the business end of elections right now. How many people are involved in elections? You'd say, well, there's a few candidates, there's a couple of political parties. Make no mistake about it, politics is big business. And all we have to do is see all of the polls, all of the ads, all of the paraphernalia, all of the alignments that are being made around this campaign and election, and we realize it's not just about the candidates. It's not just about the policy proposals, that there is a lot going on behind the scenes. And if we don't understand the entire system of a campaign and an election, then we miss the point of what's happening right before our eyes. A woman from your HR division was with us today in the afternoon talking about training and hiring and all of the issues about placing people in jobs here on campus. Well, in a sense, we're doing interviews for the highest position in the country. We're gonna hire somebody. Is this any way to hire someone? What's our process like? How are we moving forward? The inconsolable voter sees that there is such an array of confusion going on, and it's so hard to find the facts. It's so hard to validate what's going on. It makes it a pain to be involved. No one wants a presidential election every year. We'll be lucky to get through this one. Right? And yet it's going to make the difference, all the difference in our country. And not everyone sees it in the same way. This is the second issue of the inconsolable voter. First is the fact that we've got a business going on here a business of confusion. The second is that we have an electorate that is so divided that we've never been able to figure out what the consistent theme or message is for the American voter. The author who makes, I think, one of the best observations about our division as a country speaks about the generational divide. And this comes from uh, both Howe and Strauss in the Atlantic Monthly, The New Generation Gap, and also Charles Zemke, Generations at Work in America. First, Howe. Thirteeners believe that it will be much harder for them to get ahead than it was for their parents. 
and they are overwhelmingly pessimistic about the long-term fate of their generation and the nation. They sense that they're the cleanup crew constantly sweeping up, sweeping up past baby boom desert scapes and suffering because of it. The younger voters themselves see the boomers as a generation that was given everything from happy days to tomorrow land and threw it all away. This only begins to talk about the dissatisfaction that the younger generation and younger voters have with what they've seen go before them. The disillusionment, they weren't disillusioned by Vietnam, they weren't there. They weren't disillusioned by, say, a, a president in jeopardy of losing his position, they weren't there. But they've seen enough through environmental issues, through the skeptical press and media, through a changing Netscape view of the world to realize that their interests are completely different than the generation before them, to realize that their lives and livelihood are also at stake in this election. Thus, we see Senator Bernie Sanders appealing to a huge group of youth, which is a fabulous thing. It's fabulous to see the enthusiasm. It's fabulous to see the new energy. It's fabulous to see new registrations. And yet, will we be able to hold on to those registrations no matter what happens with his candidacy? Zemke comes at this, author Zemke comes at this from a different perspective, also talking about generations. His book, Generations at Work in America, speaks to every business, every educator, and every candidate about the difficulty of getting a consistent message out that will move a voter and give them faith in what they're talking about. He says this is the first time in the history of the country that we have had five generations at work beside one another. Think about that. It's the first time in the history of the country we've had five generations at work beside one another and all of voting age. In earlier years, the length of time, length of life for an older generation was not as long and they were simply gone before the third or fourth generation came of voting age. But here we have an extended range of voters, all the way from the veterans who were born between 1922 and 1943. The veteran age, now 52 million in the country, are still out there voting, one of the highest voting rates in the older population. And they have a certain mindset, a certain mindset that is seen all the way back to World War II and maybe even before in the Depression. Then there's the boomers, which you've heard more than you ever want to hear about. Born between 1943 and 1960, there's 73 million boomers out there up for votes. They have a certain set of perspectives in the mix. And the Xers, as they've sometimes been called, between 1960 and 1980 was when they were born. There's 70 million up for grabs, all of voting age now, with a particular point of view. And finally, the Nexters, 1980, and up to the present. Uh, there are 70 million Nexters. A little over half of them are just now of voting age. Okay. 
So with these generations together, you'd say, well, so what? A lot of different age ranges. Well, all you have to do is look at the following of the various candidates and see what the so what is. See the definite drop-off first on the Democratic side between the older voters for one candidate and the younger voters on another candidate. Look at the Republican side and see a very mixed hodgepodge of all of these different candidates and the various niche markets that are being searched out in order to capture that vote. The hardest part of the equation is that if you're writing a campaign speech, a campaign ad, or even figuring out how to communicate with voters, you're going to use a very different vehicle depending on which age group you're working for. So you find that the value sets that fit with each of those groups often conflict with one another. The veterans, or that oldest group that I spoke about, are often characterized as being very hierarchical and logical. Now you tell me what campaign ad fits that description. The boomer group is characterized as being very soul-searching and having a love-hate with economic prosperity. Okay, love-hate relationship there. Totally different demographic. The um, Xers are characterized as being very self-reliant. I'll do it myself. I'll do it my way. And very skeptical. We hear and see where they fall in the mix of this campaign. And the youngest nexters love collective action and are very tenacious in their work. So we see all of these characteristics, and then we begin to look at the reflection of that within each of the campaigns. Some are appealing across the board, but most are missing the boat. Most seem to have their campaign ads, their campaign materials, the policy issues that they're talking about, aimed merely at their own projections of America, their own experience. And very few, except Sanders, are almost ignoring totally the use of the country, except when they try to reach out on tuition issues or on some very other minor issues. And so the challenge for us as a voter is to try and find who's talking to us. And the us is a blend of all those different age groups. So within one family unit, you've got people responding in very different ways. Having a family discussion, probably not going to be too pleasant. Okay? Having some unanimity in the family about this, probably not going to be a very good fit. And in that whole array, we find that the election goes on trying to serve the interests of a country from Washington and Idaho all the way to Georgia and Florida. Imagine all the regional mechs along with the generational mechs, and you begin to see the complexity and why you can't find someone you can believe in. Because there is so much variety going on, and it is so difficult to really direct a message that means anything to you. And that's just before the election. The inconsolable voter goes on after the election as well. Because no matter who you are thinking of voting for, and I trust you're all going to be voting, you'll likely find 
that at some point you're going to be disappointed. Because what happens in the last three presidential elections is that the closeness of the vote in the country meant that almost half of the country is then living with a president that they did not vote for. That is a huge challenge and it's even worse challenge the more bitter the election, the more difficult it is to console yourself with the ultimate winner and to come back to recognizing that is my president. This has so many implications that the authors that have been writing about our sense of democracy and our doubts about democracy, talk about how the final results of elections, even when they are uh, incontrovertible, when people don't doubt the results, but especially when they do doubt the results, pushes people away from long-term civic participation. In other words, I'm not even going to get involved. I was so excited about this, that didn't work, I'm not going to be involved in anything else. Or I was so excited, and my candidate won, and now what's happening? Not everything that I hoped for has come true. Not everything that was promised has been fulfilled. And so again, we become inconsolable as a voter. And the next round, the next election, is less likely to engage us. It is a tough and a very difficult situation in the country that most people don't seem to be thinking about before an election when we become so tough-minded, when we have such strong rhetoric when we find it so easy to hate one side and love the other side. This is why I call it the inconsolable voter. How will we ever capture? How will we ever encourage? How will we ever unite after that kind of fight? We'll still be a country divided by age groups, like no other time. We'll still be a country with regional interests from north, south, east, and west. And yet we will have one president by this time next year. That's why I talk about the difficulties of being engaged. And yet, as we stand here tonight at Whitworth, we also realize our own responsibilities, not only as citizens, but also as adults and as Christians involved in our own country, involved in the outcomes of elections, involved in the public policies that affect those in need especially, involved in a reputation with the rest of the world, involved in ushering and shepherding precious resources that we are fortunate enough to have in our country to the areas of most need it becomes an extra responsibility for us. It becomes an extra responsibility first for us not to get caught up in the very negative rhetoric that goes on in the elections, which is my first request of you and anybody who picks this up on our podcast tonight. Because what we begin to do, it's hard to imagine another circumstance where Christians in particular have the liberty to speak down about other human beings. 
have the liberty to be vociferous about their complaints and personal attacks on individuals that they don't really know, have the liberty to make public statements that are so damaging not only to another individual, to the reputation of the country, and I believe ultimately to our souls. This is not a football game. This is not a sports event. This is not a time where we can paint our faces and cheer on a team and scream at the ref and call the other team all sorts of names. This is serious business. And yet, we get swept up in the excitement of a campaign and feel that freedom to engage because this is so important. And surely we can speak our mind and join the other side that we want to and yell at the enemy who may indeed be our president one day. It becomes a particularly difficult time in the country when you look at it from that perspective. And for us to prepare ourselves and to think this through more closely helps us to face whatever consequences we come up with in terms of the election results. We are either building a nation and staying to fight on another day or fracturing a nation and working against our own interests. I don't believe that it's mentioned or brought up from any pulpit. The most that happens is someone encouraging the vote for someone or no mention at all. And the worst that happens is the degradation of certain candidates from the pulpit itself. And we allow that to happen. We allow that to happen like we would talk about no one else. Because from our training and our faith-based perspective, it is our challenge not to engage in that way. And yet we give ourselves every liberty. It's just another football game. And we're going to cheer for our side and disrespect anybody who doesn't agree with us. It's dangerous territory for us to be in. So that's the third piece of it, and it's a serious piece. We've got the election coming up. We've got the business that pummels us with all this information. We've got the candidates trying to address the needs of all of these generations spread out with their various styles, various needs, various concerns, various ways of collecting data and making judgments, and then, We've got our faith-based commitments that move us to be able to have a perspective, to have a sensibility for realizing our responsibilities without crossing the borders that would cause us irreparable harm thereafter. Is this the first time that this has happened? No. Is this the first time it's happened, say, in this century? No. Last century? No. Let me read you a little piece about the antics that have gone on over the history of campaigns, history of campaign tensions. Uh, published here tells us that in 1880, there was no mass media, 
as we know it today, so candidates had to rely on other means of getting their messages out and their names recognized and following on a long tradition of sharing news through songs and ballads, the 1880 campaign of James Garfield and Chester Arthur relied in part on a songbook. Can you imagine that? A songbook. It was easy to see familiar themes in this effort to define and publicize the candidate, and Garfield is shown as a man of sympathy with a common man and the songs, The Boatman Jim, reminiscent of his youth, in the field by plow and shop, behold him welding the labor's tools. All of these campaign songs were popular in the 1880s. This was the way to communicate a message beyond all of the tools that we have today. Garfield's military experience and his experience in the Civil War created his campaign messages in these songs. And they would picture him with his saber and riding his horse and building up his image as this veteran. On the Republican side, there were reminders for former soldiers. And there were also backers who made an attempt to paint his foe in an unfavoring light as the Bourbon Democrat and all of the nasty campaigning continued throughout. So all of the gimmicks, all of the efforts to reach out have been a part of our American history. From the pamphleteering that went on years before, from the nasty stories and innuendos that would circuit in the rumor mills, from the campaigns that would pay and bring peoples out of the brothels and bars to the polling place, from individuals that would put up blockage around the polling places where they knew there was a high propensity of voters for the opponent, from the public works departments that were taken over and instructed to do road repairs on a certain day, election day, in and around the polling places to keep certain populations from voting. Not to mention the poll taxes, the literacy tests, all of the other proofs of citizenship and literacy that were created. Our campaigns in this country have always had their elements that have been negative, and yet the country has kept going, has kept changing, in a quote-unquote peaceful manner into new leadership with each cycle. Will it be any different this time? Were other voters inconsolable in past years? Were they aware of the types of efforts that were being made to prevent a pure vote in the country? And is a pure vote ever really possible? Our work continues to be involved in that way. And it means that we as citizens and as Christians need to be involved between campaigns and at the time of campaigns. But how do we do that? Are we just gonna turn and run as fast as we can once this election is over and hope that next time it's not that bad? No. 
The work here at Whitworth, the work in this community and the work across the country goes on at various levels. And I want to challenge you to think about how you might be engaged at another time, even after election day, to keep the momentum moving forward for good thoughtful elections, for good thoughtful policies, for our nation to support just policies and issues for everyone. And there are ways to do that. Let me make a couple of recommendations on how to do that. Some of the organizations that have kind of fallen from favor in the last few years, but continue to be so supportive in helping us think through issues are those that I'm going to mention right now. And I think they're ripe for revival. I think they're ripe for a younger generation to pick up and run with them. One of them, which actually gives me the image of, uh, well, I'll just say not a popular, useful image, is the League of Women Voters. Anybody ever heard of the League of Women Voters? Okay. The League of Women Voters, a nonprofit organization that has existed for at least 100 years and is known for considering issues that are in the public policy venue, for getting involved in campaigns not on the side of one candidate or another, but hosting debates and panel discussions. They were the first people to actually host candidate debates before CNN, before CBS, before any of the other big televised types of debates went on. And they are in every state. Their business is to really vet, do the very thing that you think is impossible to do, they do, to vet the campaigns, which means to take a close look at the policy initiatives being discussed and the campaign rhetoric and promises and to find out what are true statements, which are not so plausible, which are policy issues that will affect which populations. They do all the study ahead of time. They, like me, are getting into their retirement years. They need fresh blood. They need reinvigoration. They need to be upheld by a younger generation and perhaps even need to have a force on a campus like this and many campuses like this to make sure that campaigns are not just about campaign season, the business of campaigns when there's a lot of money to be made in these ventures, but are careful and well thought out efforts that go on throughout the years so that we can keep an eye on the people that make promises to us to make sure that they keep promises to us. That's just one group. A second group that goes beyond that, and I think to the interest of a lot of you here on this campus, is a group that looks at international issues as well as national issues. It's called the National Issues Forum, and I brought their discussion guide here with me, this one on terrorism, what should we do now? Now, there are a lot of people who enjoy getting together, I will say, you know, in a coffee house or some other location like that, and talk about the issues in the paper. But does the person sitting next to you know anything more than you do? Hmm, maybe a little bit, but not much. This particular discussion guide for community forums put out by the National Issues Forum comes out each month, has a set of issues that propose pros and cons on all sides. Here's the discussion on terrorism, post-attack America. 
They have a voter pamphlet in it that goes back to the issues forum so that your own in-home or on-campus group can be discussing and adding to the national dialogue in an informed, educated way. It's the sort of thing that becomes really the material for political science, for international education, for contemporary issues. So I encourage you to investigate this sort of action as well. It is that kind of discussion that goes on, but does not go on in an informed way as we meet socially, as we meet just with friends, and sometimes, uh, as the outset, after we've finished our college courses, who are we going to discuss these things with? Where are we going to find these options? Where are we going to find some information that gives a fair, nonpartisan perspective on these groups? There's several other groups like this. I believe that as much as we spend time looking back in time as Christians, studying the scriptures, considering what our responsibilities are in our contemporary world, trying to make application of what God has to say to us about how we live our lives, about what our responsibilities are in this world, that our next responsibility is also to look at the issues right around us that our tax dollars are going to every single day. Tax dollars that are on their way to Syria, tax dollars that are on their way to Israel, tax dollars that are throughout Latin America and Africa. There's very little else, I don't know if you're like me, that you spend your money on that you don't keep track of. I have a little section in my wallet for all my receipts. And this is at my husband's urging, is that at the end of every month, I take down my financial receipts and say, well, this one was a business expense, and this one was a personal expense, and this one was a gift, and this one was a contribution. And I keep track of it all. But I never keep track of the amount of tax that's coming in all of those expenses and then look to see where my taxes are spent. It's my American dollars that are going to many issues and events, some positive, some I consider negative around the world. It's the work of the League of Women Voters, the work of the National Issues Forum that helps us to keep informed, to keep strengthened, to be responsible and follow our taxes around the world, therefore follow our faith around the world and how we're being represented by the government that collects our taxes. So there's several steps along the way where we can retrieve ourselves and our faith in what's going on. It is a tough season to be involved in campaigns and elections. It is an easy out for us to get involved as a spectator and be involved in lots of campaign rhetoric that we would never say in polite society. It is an easy thing for us to figure that if our candidate doesn't win, we don't have any responsibility to whoever the new president is because that wasn't our candidate, but it's your president. And so as we realize that we're caught in the middle here, we can either just let it happen to us or we can take some charge. And I'm encouraging you to take charge of it, 
to take your own charge, to watch what's happening, and to realize how your money is going to be spent and by whom because of decisions that get made. There's a saying for where I come from along the coastline in Southern California. I live in Santa Barbara, California, and we have uh, a lot of sailors. And there's an old sailing uh, saying that says, I don't know which way the wind will blow, but I know how to set my sail. I don't know which way this election is going to come out, but I know how to set my sail. I'm going to set my sail by being involved in a positive way that hopes to encourage more and more voters to go to the polls, no matter who they're going to be voting for. I set my sail by being involved in civic discussions between elections and following my tax dollars and understanding that this is my government, that whoever wins will be my president, and I want them to represent me well. And so I get involved in those discussions and make my opinions known. I set my sail by encouraging young voters who get enthusiastic about one candidate to stick with the process and see it through all the way, no matter if their candidate wins or not. I set my sail by registering new voters each election, especially those that are underrepresented in the voting blocks and whose lives have a lot at stake in the economic equity in our community. I set my sail by not allowing myself to imagine that I'm at a football game, but realizing that I'm in the important business of the selection of the President of the United States. And I follow some words that come from yet another source that were very wise, not in our country, but from Mohammedas Gandhi, years ago, the seven social sins. And I'm going to close and open for any questions that you have by reading these seven social sins and leave it to you to think about your life, your decisions, your opinions, and your inconsolable nature as a voter caught in the political process. Seven social sins are engaging in politics without principle, having wealth without work, having commerce without morality, having pleasure without conscience, having education without character, having science with no humanity, having worship with no sacrifice. We owe it to ourselves, we owe it to our country, we owe it to our allegiance to Christianity to be responsible in a way that is accountable. Thank you very much. Thank you.